anytime you can kind of find optimism in your own life, it's likely to result in all these positive knock-on effects that you may not even see until years down the road. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast. Before I introduce this week's guests, as always, I wanted to ask everyone to do me a favor, go to iTunes, leave a review. I'll read it on the air. And thank you in advance. All right. So I'm sitting here this afternoon with Mark Ledane, Vice President of Strategy for Balladier. Mark, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Yeah, I actually got started as an investment banker. I went to oh. school at... <laughs> yeah. That's the typical investment banker response. I went to school at Queen's University in Canada, and then I moved back to Calgary to do energy investment banking for Barclays. Great team. At that time, it was a lot of the ex-Lehman team, very similar to the U.S. franchise that Barclays purchased. And it was a lot of cross-border M&A, primarily energy infrastructure and power. And I loved it. You're working with smart people fast-paced, complex situations. And one thing too, for, for anyone that's listening is you see these cycles where investment banking is either loved or hated as a career path. And, and one thing I would say is that I still think it's a very appealing career path for new grads and MBA grads that are looking at it. And it's an interesting time because a lot of people right now, they want to kind of work in tech or they want to be an entrepreneur. And I've been lucky enough to stumble into the privilege of having both those career paths. And one thing that investment banking does beyond all just the, hey, you're learning really quickly with smart people getting a lot of exposure is I did find it surprising how useful the self-awareness that you get in investment banking is for any type of entrepreneurial path, because you often have to make decisions as an entrepreneur with limited information within small teams. Sometimes you can't get a hold of people and you still have to make a decision. And that self-awareness is very similar to what you learn as a junior investment banker, where sometimes your entire team is on a plane and you have to make a decision about something you edit or what question you ask, or even just take a meeting that you weren't expecting yourself. It's very similar. And I found those skills, you don't get a lot of opportunities to learn that in career paths. And I was lucky to do that as an investment banker when I first got started in the space. And I loved covering energy. I really liked the people. I loved how dynamic the industry was. And I loved that everything you learn about in life touches it in some way from, you know, politics to engineering. Or to hydrocarbons. So yeah. There's that too. <laughs> Sounds like there's never a dull moment. Yeah. I found that energy investment banking, especially back then, because I started in, in 2010, it was all kind of the large cross-border deals. You were looking at unique financing structures, and it was a time where you were solving 
kind of very complex problems on how you meet this growing energy demand in a responsible way. And it, it's interesting at, at this point in time, you know, you think about the European energy crisis, suddenly people are, are facing those same problems again that we saw a decade ago, where the world's probably short energy and a lot of smart people are working to kind of solve that problem in a responsible way. Yeah. Let's go a little bit further into your career. Yeah. So at Barclays, I was a vice president there and I kind of started to look at, at what the Validair team was building. There were about eight people there at that point in time. And they were building software that allowed you to create a fingerprint of the molecule with all its attributes associated. And I came over as a director. I'm now kind of head of strategy with Validair. And what we're providing is, is a data layer for the energy supply chain so that people know what molecule they have, who owns it, and where is it, which sounds really simple, but it's, it's kind of a crazy supply chain where people often don't know what they've bought or sold until after the fact, sometimes even not then. And you get all this economic and environmental friction associated with that. And, and you see it in large stories where a tanker gets to South Korea or Singapore and it gets turned away because it was the wrong quality crude. It's easy for people to understand in that instance, okay, someone lost a lot of money there and there were a bunch of unnecessary emissions associated with that. But it happens all the time at a smaller scale and we can actually prevent it by predicting a bunch of these attributes that people can't measure and attaching attributes that are increasingly becoming important to stakeholders. And it's everything from, there are about 350 attributes in our software. It's everything from, okay, here's the sulfur of this barrel of crude to here's the methane intensity associated with this gas molecule. And my role is, as in this kind of strategy role is to run a bunch of small experiments without using significant internal resources on how else we can use that tool, what additional primary data we should pull in, who we should partner with, so that it ultimately shortens our sales cycle, we can provide more value to our clients, we can compound the time they've spent with us, we can create additional ROI from the software. And a lot of that is kind of done through these, these strategy experiments where we can then productize something, make it repeatable, or decide to pass on it if it isn't actually a useful item to add to our business. And, and that part of it is probably more similar to some of the strategy roles you see at traditional kind of high growth tech startups in this this past decade. Yeah, that's really neat. I say that because it's like you're solving mysteries, you know, by experimentation. And that intrigues me because we're all problem solvers, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. Everyone that gets involved in this type of thing, it's the problem that typically excites them the most. I'd say for, for me personally, it's how you provide much needed energy to everyone in a responsible way. Like one of our kind of core drivers is that, you know, energy is really the largest determinant of quality of life globally. It's distributed unequally and some of that's due to data. And there's a bunch of emissions data that can be used to better decide how it should be distributed going forward. And you don't see people, people don't have the data, both companies and stakeholders currently to make the correct decisions around that. I'd say some of the aversion 
to gas in Europe and Asia is probably a good example where you're now swinging back where people are turning on coal plants again, just because they didn't have the data on gas being kind of low life cycle emissions compared to these alternatives. And those are big problems, but they're solved with, they can be solved with a lot of tools you've seen in other industries, similar to kind of the software that we've built here. So we we do take a, a very similar view and it's kind of the the problem, that excitement around it that drives a lot of our kind of hiring and just our personal energy and motivation in general. Yeah. So what are some additional challenges or issues you face uh, with the experimentation? Yeah, I think the challenge we face with running these experiments is effectively, how do you make that data useful for all all parties? And, And this is internal and external. It's an interesting industry where everyone cares about it, whether they know it or not. Even if you don't think energy is important, it's likely the largest input in the things you do find important. And it's going to drive the cost for them, everything from, you know, food to even something as simple as, you know, getting a product at your house, that price and the ability to actually get it on time is going to be driven by energy. So it's useful to everyone. Everyone's a stakeholder in these global energy decisions, but the data often isn't presented to them in a usable way and in a way that has continuity across stakeholders. And and we even see this between companies where someone has a specific data set, maybe they've got all the data on the NGL products in, in that business, and someone else is doing production accounting that could actually inform some of the decisions you make on those products. But those two groups don't have data sets that are useful to the other person in a relatable way. They're often not aligned on even what the core truth is that that data is telling them. And that's really the core problem is that that central source of truth, that kind of shared continuity, and this is telling me what I think it is, and everyone else looking at it is taking a similar message away. That's the very real problem we have in rolling out kind of whether it's a new product or whether it's a a new customer. We're starting to send a lot of our data for clients um, to different regulatory bodies in their jurisdictions because that's data we already pulled for them and formatting it in a way that's, that's useful for them and useful to these different stakeholders that's always the toughest part of that mission. It is important because once everyone kind of has that data, then they can make optimal decisions, whether it's internally or even just getting well-deserved social license from stakeholders to build pipeline projects, for example. You, you see this in the, well, in, across North America, where a lot of stakeholders just don't have the actual data they need to make informed decisions or it isn't presented in a way that's translatable to them. So I'd say that's, that's always the toughest thing which again, it uses a lot of skill sets that you develop throughout a variety of different careers. You don't have to start in tech to be able to help clients and stakeholders solve those problems. Yeah, definitely. I mean, investment banking, you know. Speaking of that, that transition between being an investment banker and then transitioning over to Validir, what were some challenges you had to really get through to do that? I mean, culture shock, you know. That's a great question. I found there were a couple things, but I'd say the thing that surprised me the most actually was how similar much of kind of the work and the time 
was in reality. One thing I'd say to you know anyone that's looking at entrepreneurship or joining a small team that's solving a problem they're passionate about. When I joined, we were kind of eight, nine people. Validator is about 93 people now. We're going to be 100 in a couple of weeks here. And wow. we're, very, we're very lucky to have that opportunity. But the interesting thing I found is people often make that driven people often make those switches because they think there's a quality of life change or they're going to have some sort of additional passion with may be true in, in some instances, but I found with most kind of driven people that are focused on personal progress, probably very similar to everyone listening to your podcast, is that you will find that you take a similar approach to all situations in life, which is good. You know, if you're doing banking now and you want to switch because you want to go into tech, I would guess that you will probably devote the same amount of energy to tech because you're just a person that's passionate about solving problems. And so then really, when you think about that, it becomes, okay, if, if I'm going to take the same approach to everything, whether it's, you know, a charity or running a race or a marathon or a new job, if I'm going to take the same approach, my decision should be about what problem I want to solve rather than looking at the nuances of the day to day because I'm probably going to recreate the same situation for myself. And I certainly found that I enjoyed in banking. I enjoyed working with smart people in a fast paced environment. When I came over here, I enjoyed working with, again, smart people in a fast paced environment. I'd say the only difference I found that, you know, my eyes were wide open coming in is there's a big resources shift for going from a global bank to, you know, being one of two people in, in the Calgary office, which is as long as you're aware of that, that's absolutely fine. But <laughs> it's good. It's good to understand how much support you're getting at those those big firms. I've seen a lot of people leave and they're surprised with just, you know, the lack of access to data, the money, lack of, money, lack of ability to get meetings. Yeah, big companies are great. They provide, you know, a great place to even pursue innovation. You see it now where you look at the banks, the kind of big global investment banks, they're spending about the exact same on new tech as the full kind of fintech venture space these past couple of years. So a lot of people decided, hey, if I'm going to build something, I may as well do it with all these resources, which is fair. It's important to look at those options before you make decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just want to share a few quick things for November. First, our industrial mixers here in Houston, November 17th. It's usually the last Thursday of each month, but because of the holidays, we're having to move stuff around. We're also launching a new live stream, OGGN Unscripted, on November 16th. We'll be at the Rockwell Automation Fair November 10th through 11th. You can come free. We'll have a live podcast there. We'll be hosting some panels. And then we'll also be at the 23rd World Petroleum Congress 5th through 9th, once again with live podcast and hosting a couple of panels. For this information and everything else, just follow us on social. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And if you go to LinkedIn, go ahead and join the OGGN Street Team. I'll see you again next month. If you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? I like that question a lot. The one that increasingly is clear to me is that if you're an optimistic person, it's just an easier life in general, but it also creates an easier life. You get this surprising flywheel effect. 
when I was really young, I used to, you know, you'd meet with, you'd look for a mentor or you'd get the chance to meet someone senior in town and you'd find that they'd often be really optimistic and you'd say to yourself, well, you know, of course you're optimistic. You're in this huge house. You have a, a lovely spouse. Life's really easy. Like, uh, of course you're in a great mood whenever I see you. And, you know, I'm doing my like CFA at night, grinding away at work. Like it, it makes perfect sense that you're this optimistic person. But as you go through your career, you fully realize that a lot of that optimism is actually putting them in a place to succeed. And you even see this in your own life with what opportunities you want to send to your network. We hire a lot here, for example. And whenever I think back to someone I met who was optimistic about solving a problem or just, you know, highly motivated and enthusiastic, they're always the first one I reach out to about a new job. And you just see those kind of small decisions, thanks to their optimism, compound into a much easier life where if they make a mistake, people are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt because they enjoy working with them. That kind of optimism naturally creates a life that reflects that. And that continues to hold more true as I go through my career. It's one thing that I highly recommend. Anytime you can kind of find optimism in your own life, it's likely to result in all these positive knock-on effects that you may not even see until years down the road. Man, I need to be more optimistic then. I'm too much of a realist, I guess. (laughs) It's funny. I go back and forth. Like, I, you know, you hear me say that and clearly I'm mindful of it, but it's a constant struggle because I'm sure my wife probably hears me say that and is like, what do you mean? You were so tired and, and discouraged this morning. Like it's a, it's good to, it's good to acknowledge that it's something you have to work on. There are real benefits to it. And it's just, it's just nice too. Like it's more likely to be an easier life for you. That is definitely true. So why not try it for that alone? And then I expect you get these knock on benefits as well. Yeah. I definitely understand what you're saying. I bet your wife did a, the biggest eye roll, though. Oh, for, for, for sure. Yeah. You'll, you'll find her in the comments, definitely. Awesome. <laughs> so what book influenced you the most and why? Who is Michael Ovitz is an interesting book and, and great in a number of reasons. So it's pretty much about he was the talent agent that started Creative Artists Agency. So a lot of the kind of talent agent stereotypes that you see in in movies and shows about them waking up early, they do their workout, they're yelling at everyone all day. They're, those stereotypes, a lot of them are based on him. But it's just a, a really interesting book because it goes through how everything in life is sales, whether you think it is or not. Almost any job there's a significant sales component. And he kind of acknowledges that early on and uses that to his success throughout when he's trying to keep clients, trying to get new projects for clients. And it's just really interesting watching the approaches he takes. And and there's honestly useful stuff in there that's good for anyone that thinks sales might be remotely relevant to their professional career, which it is for way more people than they'd expect. And then the, the other interesting thing about the book is, is he actually goes on, he does a bunch of deal advisory, he runs Disney at one point. It's exciting to see how many interesting things you can do in a lifetime if you just think you can. It, it's 
it's kind of funny because when you when you go through his mindset and you see him throughout his entire career progression, you realize that as he moves into these other roles, such as running Disney for a brief period, which wasn't overly successful for him in that role, he left after a bit. I, I think he got a large severance package, though. But you kind of look and, and a lot of what's driving him into these new roles is, is simply personal confidence about his capability to do that and then taking these very translatable skills, a lot of them communication-based, into these new roles. And I think it's a really good book for anyone that wants to advance or wants to try different pursuits in their career. We actually give it to a lot of new employees because it's good to kind of reevaluate how you're thinking about things from a perspective that isn't just a traditional business book. It's more a very different story than most people would expect. So I, I really like who is Michael Ovid. It's a great book. And he's a high energy individual, which even just reading that, you find kind of your own energy levels increase, which I've always found helpful. Good, good. So what is your most used business tool? I mean, it, it's definitely Excel as a banker. <laughs> that didn't go away. We're, go, we're going old school. <laughs> yeah, my team's probably so upset because they give me so many good new tools that it's probably Excel. But I'd say the second one that's that's a really good business tool is, I don't know if you or any of your network uses Gong, but it effectively, it's a note taker that gives you feedback on how you approach meetings. And oh, it's just really useful to get feedback, one, without having to watch yourself. I don't know about, you're probably able to do it really well as a podcast host, but whenever I, I see myself on webinars or something, there's always, you know, large chunks where I'm not enjoying it as much as... <laughs> As anyone else. So it, it's nice to do that and see it in note form. But two, you don't often reassess what you say in meetings. And if you look at actually how much you talk, how many questions you ask, in fact, you often get the opposite impression. Like one of the things that I think has been proven with a bunch of studies is that the people that talk the most think the meeting went the best. And, you know, if you're trying to understand client problems, that's actually something you need to fight against where you need to be listening for the majority of the time. That's just true in a lot of life, but especially when you're trying to solve problems for others in a service capacity. So yeah, Gong is right up there after Microsoft Excel. That's very interesting. So I'm going to be very honest with you, Mark. I cannot stand my voice. I don't edit my own stuff anymore, so I don't listen to my own shows, but I do remember what I say during interviews. <laughs> Because I overthink her a lot of things, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but that's just me. But yeah, no, I understand exactly what you mean. You know, a lot of people say they like my voice and I'm glad for them. <laughs> yeah. So I have a similar view. I always assume that's not how I actually sound when I hear it back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's part of it, too. But yeah, I definitely understand where you're coming with and identify with you on that specifically. So you don't have to say their name or anything or what have you, but who's your most respected competitor? I would say our most respected competitor currently is do-it-yourself is still a formidable competitor at a lot of clients and, and for a variety of, of reasons. When you think about us and we meet with a new company, especially one that wants to build data capabilities in-house, 
we can offer them a lot of solutions where they may initially want to do it themselves or view themselves as capable there. And, and quite often, that's something that you can't really convince someone until they've gone down that path, because there are a lot of good reasons where they'd want to own their own destiny. You know, they control the process internally so they can decide the outputs, report on it to their boss. There aren't any surprises for them. If they've been given a mandate to build up technical capabilities, it's aligned with that. They get to hire a team under themselves, which a lot of people want throughout their career. It gives them more resources. And, and those are a lot of very fair items that resonate with me for why people would want to do something themselves when we pitch them on a virtual analyzer, for example, it's pretty much a digital twin. Those are fair reasons. I'd say the things that we're increasingly using to kind of get people more comfortable is, is just communication on they're partnering with us on this development. We don't sell tech on the premise that it's replacing people because we've usually found the opposite actually is if you're improving ROIs, the company's usually given more flexibility to hire in that vertical, you know, spend more on different data capture methods. Right. It reinforces the software. So kind of communicating that message has been key. And then secondly, we're kind of, we've been lucky where we've gotten to a point in our life cycle where we do have a bit of a, a data advantage and we've seen enough at analogs across the industry that we can make life way easier for that person. Because if our model's based on seeing a couple million barrels a day of data for almost all entities, that's just going to be more useful for the prediction that they want that's going to drive their bonus or reduce costs. So part of that is we're just entering a point in our life cycle where that pitch is a lot easier, but that's still a formidable competitor. I have a lot of respect for clients that walk us through why they want to look at something internally and we just look to support them in that as they do. And then, you know, if, if something else comes up in the future, that usually that kind of amicable approach where you're a partner, you're still supporting them in that, but not directly involved is usually a good way to get additional business down the road. That's awesome. So what's your most important lesson learned? I would say the most important lesson learned that I started to experiment with early on in my career is that if you think of yourself as a service provider to your boss or your team, you know, spouse is probably a great one too, that it just makes a lot it adds a lot of clarity to your decisions, which isn't otherwise there. A good example would be, we often have all these personal motivations that go into what we think we should do during a workday. Some of them are, are driven by insecurity. A good example would be, you know, you're in a meeting and you think you need to repeat something so that your boss knows you understand it and your boss knows you're smart. If you think back to a service provider role, that actually isn't useful to your boss. Maybe the useful thing is that instead of thinking about what you were going to say, you took good notes or when there was something that you thought your boss misunderstood, you asked the client to repeat it. You can do that with a million decisions over the course of the day and it creates a lot of clarity around what your role actually is and you usually achieve those things that you want. So in, instead of thinking all day, 
okay, I need to make sure this person notices me. I need to make sure people understand how smart I am. If you just think, hey, I'm a service provider to these eight people, almost almost as an individual entrepreneur, you find that you achieve all those things because you're just focused on making other people's lives easier during the workday, which especially as you start your career, that's really what people are looking for. And they appreciate it. If you've somehow saved them time, whether you, you know, printed something off early for them as a summer student so that they weren't waiting for the printer and they could just go home, pick up their kid five minutes earlier, that is a difference. And you only thought of that because you were thinking in a service provider mindset, you weren't thinking, hey, I got to catch this person at the end of the day and ask for mentorship when all they want to do is get to their kid's soccer game. It adds a lot of clarity to how you interact, especially early in your career. And you can create a lot of value for people by kind of thinking that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So why do you think your role now is important to the future of oil and gas? The thing I really enjoy about this role is we're seeing that there are these massive energy trade-offs and people are making incorrect decisions, typically based on lack of data. And a lot of these relate to how I balance growing energy demand, because humans, we just don't use less energy. That's been true across every energy transition over the past several centuries, is we find ways to use the new energy. So you're balancing always growing energy demand with very real constraints on resource, on emissions, on impact on stakeholders. And impact on stakeholders can be everything from land usage to water usage. And entities across the globe aren't able to make optimal decisions due to this lack of data. And I, th I think the thing that I find really tough as an advocate of oil and gas is that oil and gas actually compares well across a lot of those metrics that I listed. And there, there just isn't the data in the right hands for people to champion it. Natural gas would be the greatest example where we have the opportunity, especially this past decade, to increase cheap natural gas supply globally. But in Canada, you saw LNG projects getting blocked. In the US, you saw pipelines getting blocked. Yep. And we're seeing very real consequences where Japan's a great example recently, where coal and China, obviously. So coal's coming back because you need baseload power for renewables. And it's even to the point where a lot of people are looking at oil switching. So using that in your, your generation mix, just because they haven't been able to get cheap gas or they have such a high renewables mix that they, they need more baseload. The, the UK would be a good example where there wasn't as much wind contributing into the grid this summer as people expected. So they need more baseload. And if these decisions are made without that data, in this case, that life cycle emissions of gas are actually pretty good if you can differentiate between the good molecules and the couple ones that are really bad that get more articles and pieces around them. If you can differentiate, people are going to embrace responsible fossil fuels development, which is great for the industry and generally just great for the world. Energy is a huge cost of living for the majority of the population. A huge chunk of the population doesn't even have access to reliable energy and fossil fuels 
they're frankly just a, a great battery. You can store a lot of energy in there without having to build out a grid in a lot of these countries. And we've seen how valuable that is. You know, you just look at weather events where people don't have access to reliable energy. Fossil fuels were a great battery in all those instances. So I do think providing companies so that they can make that case and global stakeholders so that they can understand those implications, data that shows that traditional fossil fuels Developing them responsibly is actually one of the biggest positive changes you can make from a global emission standpoint today, because it's just it's such a large supply chain that you're getting a massive ROI on any emissions reduction within that supply chain. That part's very easy to understand. I think that's really exciting. And it's been for kind of the the past couple of years of our growth. And I'm certain it will be exciting for the next decade. I agree. I absolutely agree. All right. I want to take a moment to spotlight one of Oil and Gas Global Network's podcasts. This episode, it will be OGGN News. Host Dean Murphy covers everything you need to know about what is currently happening across the oil and gas industry. This podcast is your one-stop shop for all things oil and gas news. Speaking of podcasts, you're an avid listener, correct? Yes. Yeah. So what's your favorite podcast? I really enjoy... I listen to all the energy podcasts outside of energy. I really enjoy invest like the best. I don't know if you've ever looked at that one. It's it's O'Shaughnessy and he's got a, a founder version of it where he talks to founders of a variety of businesses. And I think the interesting thing there is I started listening to it given my interest in finance and finance background because a lot of it was focused on that at the start. But the interesting thing now that he interviews a variety of founders on everything from restaurants to thrift clothing businesses to tech startups is that I like that they're all interesting. And that's an important thing to understand about careers where all these problems that you may not personally find interesting on the surface, when you actually dig into them, nine times out of 10, there's something very interesting about that market or problem that you just don't understand and you didn't understand when you thought about it at a surface level. Because I always start off, he'll have a guest and it'll be a non-finance guest and I'll, you know, I won't be looking forward to it. And then five minutes in, I find it the most exciting thing in the world, these nuanced problems in this industry I didn't understand. And I think that's something that people should find that kind of really exciting for their careers. Because once you develop capabilities in a particular industry or skill set, there are probably more than enough ways to deploy those in an interesting fashion. And even just once you understand things better, you often find them more interesting than you thought, which is a good thing to keep in mind as people look at a variety of career paths. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, there are a lot of people that are not in the industry that listen to this show um, just for the leadership portion of it and hearing people's stories. So I, I definitely understand that. All right. So anything you want to plug before we go, Mark? The only thing I'd say to your listeners is we're hiring a lot. And we'd love if there are those that find that problem that we're solving interesting, or they're even just interested in a discussion because they may want to look at a new role in a couple of months, years, they're more than welcome to reach out to me because we, we always need smart, interested people. And Hopefully they find that helpful that we're hiring a lot in the industry because it is an exciting time. Yes, 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 most certainly. 
So how might people go about learning more about Validir or reaching out to you, Mark? Yeah, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn or if they go to Validir.com, my email's public on there. It's just mark.ladane at Validir. They're more than welcome to shoot me a note. They can just reference they heard here that we're hiring and I'd love to have a coffee or a call with them. Always enjoy those interactions. Yeah, awesome. That's fantastic. Y'all go sign up. I know some of you are looking for jobs. Speaking of that, thanks for... That concludes our episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com. 